Father, we come tonight to worship your Son, Jesus Christ, to give him the honor that is befitting him, the wondrous name that he has as your Son, to see him as indeed superior to all that has gone before him, the dispensation of the law and the preaching of the prophets, even the angels have nothing to offer that can compare to the majesty of Jesus Christ our Savior and the benefits, the blessings of the new covenant that he has introduced and of which he is the mediator. We pray that tonight you would teach us many things about him, about his wonders, about his status, that we might be more faithful in following him, more firmly committed, more tenacious in our faith, that we might hold on to him as indeed he is set forth in the gospel, that he might be our only hope in life and death, and that we might be faithful to him until our death. We do thank you for the truths that we are about to study. We thank you that you have communicated with us, and above all, we thank you that you have communicated by giving us the very person of your Son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Hebrews, the first chapter this evening, and I'm going to read the first three verses just by way of review, but the text that we're going to try to get through this evening is the remainder of chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, the theme of which is Christ superior to angels. Last time we were together, we saw Christ the superior to the prophets in verses 1, 2, and 3 of this text, and tonight we go on to the beginning of the theme, Christ Superior to Angels. That theme actually extends all the way to the end of chapter 2, and so I'm calling this Christ Superior to the Angels, part 1, and we'll see if I even get through the first part. God, having of old time spoken unto the fathers in the prophets, by divers portions and in divers manners hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become by so much better than the angels, as he hath inherited a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he again bringeth in the firstborn into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, He maketh his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And... Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, 
and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou continuest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a mantle shalt thou roll them up as a garment, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But of which of the angels hath he said at any time, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation? That's a wonderful portion of the book of Hebrews. The author does something which I'm probably more accustomed to and more patient with than I think your garden variety reader might be. What the author does here, which is unusual in exhortations in the New Testament, is that he piles argument upon argument upon argument. And so little concerned is he with the entertainment value and with the transitions that sometimes he just says, and argument number six, and argument number seven. He just keeps piling it on, piling it on. And the nature of the argumentation is really um, indicative of the view of the Bible that was taken by this author and by his readers as well. I want you to notice that um, the way he argues is by quoting the Old Testament. In seven different places he goes to the Old Testament to prove his point. Why does he do that? If the Old Testament doesn't carry authority for him and for his readers. The author obviously expects that to settle the point. But you see, if a quotation of the Old Testament settles the point, then what do we make of the Old Testament? Well, it has highest authority, doesn't it? It's looked upon not simply as just one witness among many to religious truth. You can take a little of it, leave a little of it if you wish. No, the Old Testament is seen as the very word of God then. The word that I want you to look at in verse 4 um, that is important for understanding the whole epistle, actually, is the one in my translation that is given as more excellent. Verse 4, having become by so much better than the angels, as he hath inherited a more excellent name than they. The Greek word here is the comparative that means greater or superior, or better even. So what we have here is that Jesus has a superior name to that of angels. The interesting thing is this word superior, or better, is used repeatedly in the epistle. And I'm going to go through and give you where it's found and have you look it up. I want you to tell me what is superior or better according to the book of Hebrews. I'll start over here. Uh, Vicki, Hebrews 7, 7. Glenn, 7, 19. John, 7, 22. Michael, 8, 6. Julie, 9, 23. Marilyn, 10, 34. Don, 11, 16. Ron, 11, 35. Jim, 11, 40. And Wendy, 12, 24. And then, Kathy, would you be prepared um, with 9-11?
I'll explain that 9-11 has different wording but the same concept. Let's go through very quickly and see then how the author comes back to this idea. It's, it's a repeated thrust of the epistle. Christ is superior in the name that he has to angels. Well, what else is superior in the New Covenant? 7-7. Seven, seven. Though without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The greater what? Okay, so Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 719. For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there's a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. A superior hope. You have a superior name than angels, a superior priesthood, a superior hope. 722. Of what? A better testament, a superior covenant, actually. 8 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Has, go ahead. Which has been enacted on better promises. A superior covenant, a superior ministry, and superior promises. 9 23. A superior sacrifice, 1034. A superior possession, 1116. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to call to God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Okay, a superior comfort, 1135. A superior resurrection, 1140. God has planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. A superior plan for us, 1224. Superior things than that spoken by the blood of Abel. And then, again, the concept is found in 9-11, although the wording is not exactly as in the other ones. For when Christ appeared as a high priest to the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So a superior tabernacle in which he ministers. Do you get the point? Over and over and over again, the thought is of superiority. It's better. It's more excellent. It's above. It goes beyond anything than the Old Covenant offered. So verse 4 of Hebrews 1 begins uh, uh, an extended argument for the superiority of Christ, in particular to angels now. Did you say that it was the same word that all these, Except in the last case, the word that is used, the Greek word, is the same in every one of them. Isn't that amazing? The author is not uh, shallow about vocabulary. And the author purposely wants to keep driving that particular point home. 
9-11 uses different Greek terms to express the same concept of superiority. But all the others previous to that are the same word as we find here in chapter 1, verse 4. Now in chapter 1, verse 4, as I've said, we have an argument for the superiority of Christ to angels, but we have to ask, why should that comparison be important to make? And, of all things, why should it be made at such length? I don't think I'll get any disagreement from you if I say, if this were being written to a church in the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination in the late 20th century, I don't think the author would do more but give passing reference to this. Say, of course, Christ is superior to angels, too, and prove it with one text and go on. But the author takes almost two entire chapters to belabor this point. Now, you better, I mean, you've got to stop and say, why? I mean, it's, it's obvious to us. It was not obvious to his readers in some sense. Obviously, the situation of the readers in some way demanded this kind of discussion, and it demanded it with some urgency. They were obviously tempted to elevate angels, or a particular angel, I'm going to suggest in a minute, to a position that competed with that of Jesus Christ. So now what is that situation? What called for this? Remember that um, we've already established, or at least we've taken it on good evidence, that the author is writing to Jewish converts. And because they are Jewish converts, I think it's highly unlikely that the problem that they were tempted to fall into is identical to the Colossian heresy. Now, I want to go slow here not leave you behind. Paul writes to the Colossian church, and it's evident that he's dealing with a particular group of heretics. If you look at uh, Colossians 2.18, we don't have time to look it up ourselves, but you will notice that these heretics taught the worship of angels. Someone might say, oh, well, then probably this is what the author is writing about in the book of Hebrews. His readers are tempted to worship angels. Not likely if they're Jewish converts, though. The Jews were never tempted to worship angels. In fact, they stood apart from that. It's one of the distinctive marks of the Jewish religion in that period is that uh, angels were not divinized. They were clearly seen as separate from God, as messengers of God. And so I don't think we have the Colossian heresy here. But there is something that's very interesting in the Dead Sea community that you might be interested in knowing about. The sect, the Qumran sect, the Dead Sea area, looked forward to the kingdom of God, the eschatological age. And in that age, it was held, Michael the archangel would be in supreme command. And under Michael would be a priestly messiah, subordinate to the archangel, and subordinate to the priestly messiah, a kingly messiah. So here's this Jewish sect that has in its conception, look, is looking forward to the kingdom of God where Michael is going to be supreme, the archangel. And then there will be a human priestly messiah and under him a human kingly messiah. It's interesting that the book of Hebrews does two things, does more, but it asserts that the one who will be supreme over all will not be an angel, but is the messiah, and it is not a priestly or kingly messiah, but rather a messiah who is the priest king. 
And so in one stroke, as it were, theologically, the Qumran community is refuted. And so what I'm suggesting is these may be Jewish converts who are still struggling with the idea of a future age in which Michael has the supremacy, under whom the Messiah ministers. And now the author wants to drive that out completely, and so he washes it out, taking two chapters to say Christ is superior to all the angels. And the author's line of reasoning begins by looking at the superior name which Christ bears. I, my translation, I think, is a little bit hard to follow. I would put verse 4 in this way. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Christ has, is, ju is just this much more elevated than angels. In the name that he has is more elevated than their name. Notice that the name is inherited. This is really important for understanding the passage. The Greek word for inherited here harkens back to verse 2, where we've already seen that God spoke unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Christ is the inheritor. Christ is the heir of all things. And we read now that he has inherited a superior name to angels. The fact that this is a name that has been inherited points to some historical event. This is not a name, or it's not to be taken anyway, in the sense of what belongs to Jesus Christ from all eternity in virtue of his divine nature. It is rather a name that he has inherited, or at least a name that carries a significance that he has inherited in history. The reference must be to his human nature and his mediatorial office then, in which he has been exalted above the angels. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 9. We're going to be looking at it in detail later, but you kind of have to see this to get the point. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. When Christ entered this world and took on human nature as the messianic uh, mediator of the covenant of grace, he came into this world lower than angels. The human nature is lower than angels. But now he has inherited a name which is superior to anything that belongs to angels. After all, in his divine nature, Christ has never been lower than angels. God's not lower than the angels, so nothing that pertains to the divine nature of Christ could be exalted above the angels. But there is something about Christ that he has inherited that makes him above the angels. So do you get my point? The author is referring to the human nature of Christ in particular. He's looking at his function as the Messiah or the mediator of the covenant. And he says, in that ministry, he has inherited a name that's superior to angels. What name is it? The name's Son. You say, but he's always been the Son. The word Son, the name Son, has two connotations. You can think of Christ as the Son of God from all eternity. 
we might call him then God the Son, meaning in an inter-Trinitarian relationship, he's the Son of the Father. But the word Son here refers to the Son as the Messiah, as a human, uh, as the human nature takes upon itself the messianic office. And so, I don't know if you're all catching the point here. Let me make it very plain. The author is saying the Son of God became the Son of God. The Son of God in the sense of the divine, eternal one, who is, in terms of the Trinity, the Son, has become in history our human Messiah, the Son of God in that sense. And so he has inherited the name Son as the Messiah, which is superior to the angels. This teaching, if it surprises you a little, parallels what you find in the writings of Paul very exactly. In Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, which I'd like to read for you, and then also Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. So first of all, Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. At the resurrection and exaltation, Christ has been lifted above every other authority, every other dominion, and been given a name that's above all other names. Philippians, the second chapter, verses 9 and 10. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave unto him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow with things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, in Ephesians and Philippians, the idea is that Christ, by his messianic work, has been lifted above all other authorities, angels, demons, powers on heaven and earth, whatever it may be, Christ is lifted above them all and has a superior name. In Philippians, the name is Lord, although it's a little confusing because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, but at the end of the paragraph, it's clear that every knee sh uh, shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is, and there's the name, Lord, that is exalted, king, superior to all. In Hebrews, the name is Son. So the author is the same kind of theology, but will now focus on the name Son. A son, you see, inherits the position of privilege and authority, but servants do not inherit such a position. Servants minister to others. What's the function of angels? They are ministers. They serve others. But Jesus is the Son. I mean, it should be obvious. It's such a clear argument. Why is Jesus superior? He's superior in the same way that within a household in the Roman world, the Son is superior to the servants in the house. The angels are servants, but Jesus is the Son. He inherits all. So verse 5. The author is now going to confirm his thesis by a series of seven quotations from the Old Testament, as I've already told you. In verse 5, I think it would, we find something, it'd be hard to imagine a more forceful assertion of the full deity of Christ. 
our author is telling us that it is legitimate to call Jesus not just Son, but look at verse 8, to call Him God. And in verse 10, the very Creator of all things. He is God the Creator. I'm going to come back to this later, I hope, if we get through the entire text. But now you may be asking yourself from time to time when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door or some other sect, what could I go to quickly to prove the deity of Jesus Christ? Go to Hebrews 1. This is one of the strongest chapters in the entire New Testament outside of perhaps the Gospel of John itself. John 1. This is one of the strongest chapters that repeatedly hammers away at the full deity of Jesus Christ to prove the point. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here. The author begins in verse 5 by quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. He says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, and now the quotation, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee. The author begins with a rhetorical question that he knew all Jewish readers would have the right answer for. The Jews in that day, there was no question in their mind that Psalm 2 was a messianic psalm. And they also knew there was nothing in all of Jewish literature where an angel is designated the son of God in the same way. So the author begins by proving his point. He says, can you show me any place where angels have this said of them? But remember the messianic psalm? This day have I begotten thee, thou art my son. Now when was Jesus called the son of God? When is that name given to him? At what point? Well, we have to answer throughout his earthly ministry. He was called the son of God at his birth. Where did I leave off? Uh, Joe, have you looked up something for us yet? Okay, Luke 1, verse 32. Scott, Luke 3, verse 22. Let me jump back all the way to Judith. Luke 9, 35. And then Mike in front of her. Um, Romans 1, 4. Stacy, Acts 13, verses 32 to 33. later. Now, the question I've asked, though, is when is Jesus called Son? Well, throughout his earthly ministry and existence, at his birth he's called Son. Luke 132. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He's called Son at his baptism. Luke 322. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son. He is called Son at the Transfiguration, Luke 9.35. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And he's called Son at the Resurrection, Romans 1.4. And who in the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so what event in the earthly existence of Jesus makes him the Son? To the incarnation, the baptism, the transfiguration, the resurrection. Well, they're all used in New Testament theology to show his position as son. However, in Psalm 2.7, there does seem to be a more particular reference because it says, This day have I begotten thee. 
conceivably this day is a long day. That is, it's extended over the period of Christ's life. But the view advanced by Paul in the New Testament, I think, would suggest that the phrase in particular alludes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just read Romans 1.4, declared Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Look at Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5, and you get the same teaching. By the resurrection, he is first born from the dead. But Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, is definitive proof of this thesis. Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, because there Paul explicitly interprets the this day phraseology as referring to the resurrection. Acts 13, 32, I'll read that for you. And we bring good tidings to you of the promise made unto the fathers, that God hath fulfilled the same unto our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Not too shabby, huh? Paul very clearly then applies that to the... He says this was fulfilled because Jesus was raised from the dead. I want to suggest, however, that the author of Hebrews extends that day to include not just resurrection day, but the whole period between resurrection and ascension. Because in the fifth chapter of Hebrews, verses 5 and 6, Psalm 2, verse 7 is again quoted, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. But here the author is applying it to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. I realize it's a previous chapter, but those chapter divisions are later insertions. The author himself has just concluded the thought that Christ as a great high priest has passed through the heavens. Verse 16, we now draw near to his throne. He has passed through the heavens and is now enthroned. And then he goes into this day have I begotten. Okay, let's see if we can put all this together. I don't want to leave anybody behind. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. To make the point that Jesus, by his resurrection and ascension perhaps, has been declared the Son of God, and that no angel has ever had that applied to him. And so he's superior to angels. The begetting that is referred to in Psalm 2, verse 7, is therefore not eternal begetting. Now, those of you who are of a theological bent realize that the eternal begetting or what's called the eternal generation of the Son is something which is often discussed rather fancifully by theologians. And that language even makes its way into the Westminster Confession uh, at chapter 2, I think it's section 3, that speaks of Christ being eternally begotten and the Son eternal, I mean the Spirit eternally proceeding. And um, we shouldn't understand by that language some kind of action that's going on eternally. Begetting, 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 proceeding, proceeding, proceeding. I don't think that is the best way to interpret the confession of faith. I think what that is saying 
very simply is that the one who is the Son is always the Son. The one who is the Spirit is always the Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son. Now having said that, all I want to get across is that the word begetting in Hebrews doesn't apply to that at all. It's not an eternal begetting that's referred to, it's a begetting in history, referring to the resurrection of Christ in particular. All right, one other thing to remember about this. The author tells us that God has only one son in whom he is well pleased. God has only one son in whom he is well pleased. All sonship is concentrated on Jesus Christ. So then, if we are sons of God, if we are acceptable to him, it is only as we are united to Christ that we are sons who receive the designation well-pleasing in the sight of God. Very simply, we must be found in Christ if we are to be part of the family of God. Boy, I'm going to have a hard time finishing if I don't move along here because that's only the first half of verse 5. The second half is a uh, quotation from Second um, Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. In 2 Samuel um, 7, 14, Nathan has come to David with the promise from God that God will raise up to David a son who will build a house for God and who will have an everlasting kingdom. David, you will not build my house, but you will have a son who will build my house and he will then reign forever. In fact, the promise in 2 Samuel 7.14 is that this builder king would be treated as a son by God. David, this is your son, but I will treat him as mine. It's a very beautiful passage. David's son will be the son of God. Now, in that day and age, they would read that and probably say, oh, Solomon, dear unto God as a son. But the problem, of course, is that Solomon's mortality prevented him from being an everlasting king, and Solomon's immorality made it inappropriate that he be the one who reign in righteousness forever. So clearly, the promise is to a greater than Solomon who will be the son of God. This Old Testament theology stuff is really good, isn't it? Because, again, you see... We're edging out of this idea of a human person treated as a son to the idea that God the Son will become that human son. And so the promise of 2 Samuel 7.14 is cited. You might be interested to know the prophets of old never stopped looking for that everlasting king. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah promised that a son would be born upon whose shoulders the government would rest and he will reign forever. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, he is called a shoot after, out of the root of Jesse. He is David's son who is going to reign forever. In Jeremiah 23.5, we look for the branch who will come as our Savior, who will be called Jehovah our righteousness, and he will reign forever. In Micah 5.2, Unto poor little Bethlehem will be born one who's, who will reign over Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting. So the everlasting king 
was still looked for by the prophets. And the promise was fulfilled finally, as you know, in Jesus Christ. Look at Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. Luke, the first chapter, at the 32nd verse. He shall be great, and should be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. What a perfect collating of those Old Testament strands. Notice the one who is coming will be the Son of God, just as it had been promised. I will treat him as the Son. But he will sit upon the throne of his father, David. It's David's son who is the Son of God, and he will reign forever. The author of Hebrews then cites this 2 Samuel 7.14 as part of his proof that Christ is superior to the angels because he is the Son of God. Verse 6. The next Old Testament passage that is quoted is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. But don't bother to try to look it up because you won't find it in your Old Testament. And uh, for a Bible student such as myself, this really has fascinating implications for something that may not interest everyone. But you see, the problem is the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. This is the common, the standard Hebrew text that is used for our Bibles. The Masoretic text does not include these words that are quoted by the author of Hebrews but they are found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Now you've got two choices before you. Either the Greek translators inserted something that was not there in the Hebrew, or they had a Hebrew version of the Old Testament that was different than the Masoretic text. Now, if you have any sense of integrity and you don't want to falsely accuse these uh, translators, I think you would assume they have a different Hebrew text, that the Masoretic text left something out. And this was wonderfully confirmed in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because lo and behold, the copy of Deuteronomy 32 in the Dead Sea Scrolls includes this, just as the Septuagint, even though the Masoretic text doesn't. So your Old Testament, based as it is on the Masoretic text, will not have it, but it is there. And here it is in the New Testament preserved for us. Okay. Uh, wasn't that interesting? It was to me. I'm sorry. Verse 6. And when he, and again, he, when he bringeth in the firstborn into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God, I'm, yeah, let all the angels of God worship him. A similar exhortation can be found in Psalm 97 verse 7, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, where we read, Worship him, all you his angels. The word again, in verse 6. Do you stumble over that? It's kind of awkward. And we have to ask, does again modify, brings into the world, he again brings into the world, or does it modify he says? That would be a rather natural reading. It means, and again, he says, that is to say, here's another quotation for you. It could be, though, he says, again he brings into the world. 
in which case the possibility exists that the references to the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming into the world again rather than to the first coming, although it's not by any means necessary. Apart from that, what is the passage telling us? Well, it tells us that Christ is the firstborn and that all the angels of God have been called on to worship him. Christ is the divinely begotten Son of God. Verse 5 has already established that. We must see that he's the unique Son of God. He's the firstborn, in terms of which all others who are called sons, whether they be saved men or angels, must stand in a secondary and subordinate relationship. Christ is the firstborn. He is the unique Son of God. He is the true heir of all things from the Father. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the expression firstborn is used to speak of Christ's resurrection. We see that at Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5. He's firstborn from the dead. He's also the starting point for anyone entering into a sonship relationship. He is the firstborn that many might be called his brothers. Okay, Romans 8, verse 29. But then finally, Colossians 1.15 says that he has the highest honor as the one who inherits all creation because he is the firstborn of all creation. This firstborn, this son of God, all the servants in the household are to worship him. All the angels bow down to him. Okay, I told you I was going to come back to this theme about dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at verse 6. And just remember, all the angels of God are to worship Him. A quotation from Deuteronomy 32. But let's turn back to Deuteronomy 32 and see who the Him is that the angels are to worship. Deuteronomy 32 and we'll look at verses 30, 36, and 39 to make the point. Deuteronomy 32, 30 says, How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight except their rock had sold them and Jehovah had delivered them up? Verse 36, For Jehovah will judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth their power is gone and there's none remaining shut up or left at large. In verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. Okay, who is this one and only God, Jehovah, but all the angels worship him? Hebrews 1 verse 6 quotes that verse and applies it to Jesus Christ. Which is to say, the author of Hebrews takes a passage that applies to Jehovah, and applies it to Jesus. So Jesus is who? Jesus is Jehovah. The next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and wants to assert Jesus must be subordinate because he's never called Jehovah, say, so you haven't read Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, 6, Old Testament passages applied to Jehovah are applied to Jesus. And this is the first illustration of this. Okay, let's move on to verse 7. Another Old Testament quotation, the fourth in the series. 
and of the angels, he saith, he maketh his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Please turn tape over at this time. Okay, this is a quotation from Psalm 104, verse 4. In Psalm 104, the context speaks of the wonders of God's creation and how he has sovereign control over everything. An example of this, God makes wind and fire his servants. Fascinating thing is, though, there's a lot of ambiguity in Psalm 104, verse 4, for two reasons. Messengers in Hebrew is the same word for angel. And wind in Hebrew is the same word for spirit. And so the possibility exists that the author may be saying he makes wind and fire the tools of his angels. That is, his angels serve him and they make use of wind and fire. The author of the New Testament passage clearly takes it that way and applies it in that way. God gives wind and fire to his angels for their manifestation in the world. He makes his angels winds. He makes, I lost my place here, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. Uh, this isn't popular in our anti-metaphysical age, an age that's supposed to be so scientific and hate the idea of a supernatural realm and so forth. But the Bible suggests that angels control the wind and the fire about us. And in so doing, they are servants of God. But now the point that's being drawn out by the author, having quoted that, is angels have a servant status. They are ministers, you see. And secondly, their function is intermittent, displayed through wind and fire. And so you have the intermittent ministry of servant angels over against, in verse 8, one who is eternally the Son of God. Servant versus Son, intermittent versus eternal. And so we have this twofold contrast set up for us. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 then. Having quoted Psalm 104 about angels, the author says, but of the Son, he says, but of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. This is a quotation from Psalm uh, 45, uh, verses 6 and 7, a song that celebrates a royal marriage in the Old Testament. What is said in this psalm is particularly applicable to the messianic son of David, if you read Psalm 89, the same sorts of things said in Psalm 45 are repeated in Psalm 89 of the Messiah. In the Messiah, the throne of David's son becomes the very throne of God. And again, dealing with those who don't accept the deity of Christ, look at verse 8. Just read it out of context in a sense. But of the son, he says, thy throne, O God. He says of the son, you are God. How can he be the Son of God and be God? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is, uh, is inescapable, I think. He is fully God, and yet he's the Son of God. 
The rule of God's messianic son, moreover, is characterized by absolute justice and equity. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Verse 9 shows how God's son qualified as Messiah and Savior. He qualified by loving righteousness and hating lawlessness. This is really important to remember when we hear people so often say that Jesus came into the world to abrogate the law. If Jesus came and abrogated the law, he cannot be our Savior. It is crucial that he love righteousness and hate lawlessness. And it's because he does hate lawlessness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee. You know that the language of anointing means to become the Christ. Christ means anointed one. Therefore, you are the Christ because you hate lawlessness. You qualify to be the messianic savior because you love righteousness and hate lawlessness. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Time will fail me to give all the detail here, but I do want to make passing reference to an interesting point. Notice he is anointed with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He's exalted above all with the oil of gladness. Oil was representative of the Holy Spirit. You see that very clearly in, um, I think I have a text written for you here, 1 Samuel 16, 13. After we have the anointing of the king, it is said, may the Holy Spirit come upon him. Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 61, 1, that the Messiah would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon me to preach good tidings. And Jesus applied these words to himself after his baptism when the Spirit had uh, had come down upon him. He goes and preaches his first sermon and takes Isaiah 61.1 as his text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good tidings. And so he is anointed. But the interesting thing is, on the day of Pentecost, well, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Verse 3 says that the Messiah will grant the oil of gladness instead of mourning to his people. The Messiah, upon whom the oil of the Holy Spirit has been poured, as it were, will now grant the oil of gladness to his people. And in um, Acts, the second chapter, Peter quotes Psalm 1611. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And says this is fulfilled in the resurrection. And that the promise given to the Son has now been poured out from heaven upon the church. The resurrection makes Jesus full of gladness. And as Isaiah said, he now gives the oil of gladness in the person of the Spirit to his people, sharing the promise of the Father. And these connections, I know I'm going over much too quickly, but if you can note them and study them, it's really um, a testimony to the way the theology of Scripture is so coherent and holds together. Author of Hebrews quotes then this beautiful passage telling us that the throne of Jesus Christ is God's throne. It is a righteous throne 
that he is qualified as Messiah by hating lawlessness, and therefore God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above everyone else. One problem before we run on. He, it says here, with the oil, therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee. But the one who is anointed has been called God. So how can he be God and yet have his God anoint him? I don't know how the cults can possibly deal with this kind of problem. We are able to deal with it, though, because we believe that the incarnate Son, who has a human nature, could yet speak of God the Father as his God because of his human nature. And this is exactly what we read. Mark 15:34. Christ on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in John 20, verse 17, he tells um, Mary, who keeps clinging to him, not to do so, because he says, I have not yet ascended to your father and to my father. All right? And so he is God, and yet God the Father is God. Again, the doctrine of the Trinity pouring out to us. Shall I try to finish quickly in five minutes? I think I can do so. I rarely keep those promises, I know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. I think we started a little late, so we might be able to get this in. Verses 10 to 12. Now, a sixth time the Old Testament is quoted. Don't you love it? He says, I want to prove the superiority of Christ to the angels. Proof text, proof text, proof text, over and over again. He now quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, a psalm that extols God as the creator of all things and as the only one who is not in a constant state of change and dissolution. The interesting thing to me is the psalmist who wrote that had witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. And he extols God and he says, you alone, you alone will not be destroyed. Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou continuest. They all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a mantle shalt thou roll them up. As a garment they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. The author is of, of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has already described Christ as the creator and the sustainer of all things in verse 2. Heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, who being the effulgence of his glory and very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power. He's the creator and the sustainer. In verse 8, Christ has been called God. The Hebrew in the Old Testament is Elohim. He's the creator, the sustainer. He is Elohim. And now in verse 10, he applies to Jesus words from Psalm 102. Now, what name of God is used in Psalm 102 do you if you look at Psalm 102, verses 1 and 12, which I'll save time by not looking up right now, it's Jehovah, it's Yahweh. And now the very words that are applied to Jehovah are applied to Jesus again. And the thing that it really overwhelms me is that the author does this in such an unlabored way, such an incidental way. He doesn't say, I'm going to build up this big argument for the deity of Christ like we might with the Jehovah's Witness. He just passes it off like, well, as you know, this psalm says, we apply it to Jesus. 
But what this psalm says applies to Jehovah, don't you understand? Well, he does so easily apply it to Jesus that we have to see it as a theological axiom for the New Testament writers. Contrary to the presuppositions of Jehovah's Witnesses, the New Testament writers just took it for granted that Jesus is Jehovah. That's why you have a passage like this used. So let me remind you again how you can deal with Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to your door. They claim Jesus can't be considered fully God because he's not Jehovah. You say, well, no, wait a minute. In Hebrews 1, look at this. Of the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God. That's the Old Testament Elohim. And in verse 10, thou, Lord, in the beginning. And the Lord here is Jehovah, according to the Old Testament Psalm. And it's being applied to the Son of God. So he is Jehovah, after all. So verses 10 to 12 establish that Christ is the creator who is infinite and independent of all things. He will not fail. He will not pass away. The angels, on the other hand, are just like creatures. They are finite and dependent for their being and for their continued existence. And then finally, we come to the culminating quotation from the Old Testament the sweetest of all, verse 13, from Psalm 110. Why do I say that? Because this is the favorite Old Testament passage in the New Testament for the deity of Jesus Christ. It is cited no less than eight separate times outside this book and a dozen more times in the book of Hebrews. And so the New Testament repeatedly goes to Psalm 110.1. And the author of Hebrews says, now of which of the angels hath he said at any time? Notice this, of which of the angels? He doesn't just say, is this ever said of angels? He says, is any particular angel had this said of him? Anybody ever heard of Michael having this said of him? Of course not. It's only the Son of God who has said of him, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Verse 3 has already asserted that Christ is exalted above all. What verse 13 adds, quoted, quoting from Psalm 110, is that there are yet in this world forces that are hostile to the rule of Christ, and these forces will surely be subjugated to Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we see not yet all things subjected to him. The author of Hebrews says Christ has been exalted on high. There's only one thing left to take place in God's economy, and that's that all of the enemies will be made subject to his feet. It's one of the reasons why I'm a post-millennialist, and I'm not ashamed of it. The, the Bible says that God's plan for right now, after the uh, exaltation of Jesus Christ, what God is doing between the exaltation and the return of Christ is subjecting all his enemies to his feet. And you want to know what the order is going to be. Oh, we can't read it if I'm going to keep my promise to you. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, says the last enemy that Jesus will subjugate is death. And how will he do that? By raising the dead. What a better proof that he has power over death. He will raise the dead. But you see, that's the last enemy. Therefore, the resurrection marks the end of this period 
where Christ is subjecting all enemies to his feet. Therefore, all other enemies will be subjected to him prior to the resurrection, which means all millennialists are wrong in their framework, in their scheme. For they have Christ returning, raising the dead, and at that point subjecting all other enemies to his feet. Whereas Paul says all the enemies will be subject to Christ and then the last enemy at the resurrection. But this is God's economy for this age, the subjecting of all enemies to the feet of Christ. Okay, verse 14, the author now summarizes the status and function of angels. If you wanted to know something about angels, you've turned to a good chapter to study. We are told, one, they are spirits. Angels do not have bodies in the normal sense. They are spiritual beings. Secondly, angels are under commission. They are messengers of God, sent forth to do service. Thirdly, their service is altruistic. They are not self-oriented beings. Angels have been created to serve others, and in particular, they've been created to serve those who shall inherit salvation. I can't help but think of Psalm 91.11 where we read that God will give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. God has made angels as guardians and servants for those who will be saved. They are spiritual beings and they serve God, not their own ends. And for God's sake, they minister to us. Well, that's amazing. Well, what's more amazing than that is that Christ above the angels. They are servants, but he is the son. So remember the place of angels relative to Christ. At the birth of Christ, the angels worshipped him, not vice versa. At the temptation of Christ, they ministered to his needs, not vice versa. At the empty tomb, they announced his glory, not vice versa. At the ascension, the angels directed people's attention to Christ, not to themselves. And at the return of Christ, the Bible says they will come in flaming fire with him as his entourage. They will come, you see, serving him and his purposes. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, uh, I think it's very interesting. Those who have come unto God through Christ are said to have come to the general assembly of the firstborn and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The angels are very important creatures, but remember, they were created to serve us because we are in Christ, and the Son is above all angels, even Michael, the archangel. Well, do you have any questions? That's only part one. The author's going to go in chapter two into a further argument about angels in Christ. Judith. Um, yeah, verses 8 and 9 are from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. They run together. Another question? Don? You said that discipline, that, that uh, verse about Christ will reign till all enemies are uh, put to the first feet or something like that. Right. What would an 
amillennialist or dispensationalist or premillennialist say to that community? Well, the amillennialist says that Christ's enemies will be subjected at his return or they are subjected in a spiritual sense in this age but not in an outward way, which is to say not all enemies are subjected. And though I'm closer to being an amillennialist than I am to being a dispensationalist by far, at this point the dispensationalists at least have an answer to your question, although I think it's, a, it's dead wrong, but I think the amillennialists skirt the issue. The dispensationalists say Jesus is going to subject all his enemies and he's going to come back to earth to do it. He's going to set up a physical kingdom from Jerusalem with tanks and bazookas and fire throwers and uh, an army and he's going to conquer this world. He's going, to, he's going to clean up. And my problem, I mean the problem I have with that, I think it's their problem. The difficulty with that view is that the Bible says Christ's kingdom does not come in that way. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 tells us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That the kingdom doesn't come with swords loud clashing, but rather it's the preaching of the gospel. But um, the uh, dispensationalists would say Christ is going to defeat his enemies. He's just going to do it in a physical, militaristic way. So the, the amillennialist claim about Christ conquering his enemies spiritually, is they have... Uh, other scriptural basis for saying that that's a, a spiritual occurrence as opposed to a physical one? Well, it's certainly a teaching of the New Testament that Christ subdues those spiritual enemies, Satan, our sin, uh, and so forth. Uh, he is the king over those things. It's just I don't think the New Testament restricts his kingship to internal matters of the soul. It'd be nice to be able to uh, place the evidence for a physical conquering of Christ's enemies to all the people who are listening to all these premillennialists saying, uh, you know, we're going to lose and it's Satan's world. Well, you may, you may be interested to read an article of mine. It's short. It's only about four typed pages entitled, um, This World and the Kingdom of God. Because that's exactly the point of it, is that all millennialists are wrong to restrict the kingdom of God to internal spiritual matters. And anyone who's interested, if there's enough interest, my wife might be able to make you a copy of that. <laughs> yes. You, uh, I think I understood you trying to say that death was the last, the enemy. last enemy of Christ. And that we know was put into subjection at his resurrection. He defeated death when he rose from the dead. Well, in principle, he did. Yeah. But he's going to raise us from the dead, First Corinthians 15 says... And that will show that the last enemy has been defeated. Oh, so we're still, that's why it says that we do not see everything in subjection to. Yeah, there is still hostility to the reign of Christ all around us. But you see, our outlook should be, and what's God's plan? Just to kind of, let's see how many people can be saved before finally, you know, this uh, uh, judgment breaks into the world? No, God's plan is every enemy is going to be put under his feet. That's the plan for the age. That's the other kind, right? It's in process. Of, it's been in process ever since his resurrection. It's in process even yet. Kathy? Is our theology of angels not fully developed in the book of Hebrews and anywhere else? I suppose Revelation might compete with that a little bit. But yeah, Hebrews 
But I, I, I still think the edge goes to Hebrews because so much is told to us in these two chapters about angels. Vicki, you've been waiting patiently there. What's, I don't understand what the point is of saying that if the resurrection and ascension is when Jesus is declared the son, but if he's called the son before that of his birth and transfiguration, what's the, what's the big point of saying it's not now that he receives that name? Well, I'll give you a very weak and distant analogy, but if you understand this point, then all the more you'll get it with Jesus the Son. Um, let's say you have someone who's considered the best hitter in all the National League. And he was considered that last season. He's considered, this, he's considered that this season. And any number of things would show what a grand you know, uh, powerhouse of a hitter he is. But then next season, he breaks some record. Most home runs in one season, or, you know, you make it up. And someone says, well, he's really declared to be the all-time slugger by what he did there. Does that mean he wasn't before that? Or that that was what actually, you know, so fully demonstrated his character? Christ was the son at his incarnation, at his transfiguration. But by the re at the resurrection, how can anyone miss it? He is the son. I think that's the point of it. It so fully declares his sonship, his messianic victory, mm -hmm. and, the, and status before God. I'll throw another name. It kind of relates. I've never understood the concept of eternal son. When people you know, say Jesus is the eternal son, I guess I always thought that related to just in the in the Trinity. But then, how can he be declared the son? Is that that's two different things? The eternal sonship of Jesus Christ is an inner Trinitarian matter. He is always in the position of subordinate to the Father and sending of the Spirit. He's always the Son. It's not like algebraic uh, X, Y, and Z that are interchangeable. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a set relationship to one another. It's eternal. He's eternally the Son. However, the one who was eternally the Son has come into this world as the Son of God, the Messiah. In his human nature, he has become the Messiah and the Messiah is called Son of God. So he's declared Son of God not in the divine sense. He's declared Son of God in the sense of the human Messiah. Yeah, but you see that theology in the New Testament, it's purposely, um, well, it's not so much complicated. Those two are run together because the Son is the Son. That's the point. The, the one who is the Messiah is not just treated as God's son, as a human being. He is the son of God. He is God, yet he's God the son. Yet he's the messianic son. All of those are true. And I think the authors of the New Testament play on that purposely. Okay, Jim, then we'll quit. Uh, I have an announcement rather than well, shall we have a word of prayer then, and we'll turn off the tape, and then we'll take some, because I think there are a few other announcements tonight, too. Let's pray. And Joe, would you be so kind as to...